This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I would like to welcome everybody to um, to the first day of this uh, of this conference, which I think is going to be uh, very exciting. Uh, before I say a few words about the conference itself and about John, uh, who is our, our first speaker, um, I, I need to. I was told that I need to uh, give you some information about practicalities, and uh, so you ne you all need to fill in forms about. Um, uh, the uh, releases for the videotapes, and you all need to sign forms for your and provide copies of your passports and visas and all that stuff uh, for for us to to reimburse your expenses. So uh, ask Nikki or Helen for uh, details about that. Uh, I'm hopeless at this kind of things, so, <laughs> so don't trust me. Um, anyway, so. Uh, I, I'm very excited about this conference. I think it's, uh, it's going to be a, a very um, um, exciting two days in which the, uh, the, idea, the idea that we had was to uh, combine some uh, uh, fine academic papers that uh, uh, look at the consequences of uh, trade liberalization using rigorous um, uh, econometrics, rigorous data sets, and the like, Combine those with uh, uh, policy-oriented um, uh, discussions uh, about uh, trade institutions, about uh, uh, the <clears throat> uh, the current uh, rounds of negotiations, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and I think the uh, we think it was very important and very exciting have the possibility of uh, have the interaction between uh, people that do more academic and, uh, research uh, with uh, uh, policymakers, and we have several of them uh, in in the program of, of the conference. So I think I, I think um, is is going to be a very exciting uh, uh, event. And I should also mention, last but not least, uh, the uh, the last part of the conference that uh, uh, in which uh, the uh, the large uh, data archive uh, uh, that Stanford um, uh, built up of the WTO uh, <clears throat> uh, documents and uh, uh, will be launched on on Friday afternoon. I think that's another important uh, uh, aspect of this conference, uh, and is uh, in, in a way uh, closes the circle because these are data that hopefully the academics here and the researchers here will be using in years to come. Uh, I think it's a very exciting development having the possibility of uh, this uh, incredible, incredibly rich data sets and uh, sources of information on tariffs and tariff negotiations. I think that's where lots of the uh, uh, exciting future research um, um, uh, lies. Okay, now uh, enough about uh, bubbling. Uh, let me let me just uh, um, um, pass uh, uh, the microphone to to John Taylor, who's going to be our first uh, speaker. And I think John doesn't need much of an introduction, but uh, in a way, is the uh, one of the, the best people to be chosen to open this conference. I think because combines the rigorous academic research and uh, uh, he has for many years produced uh, uh, incredibly important research. Uh, this is something I never told you but I think one of the first papers in economics I read was one, your 1975 JPE paper on um, exp rational expectations and Bayesian uh, 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 
things, uh, with, uh, with a, a very distinguished career in, uh, in public service and, uh, and policy making. John just came back from uh, Washington where he worked at the <coughs> Treasury in the International Affairs Division uh, as an undersecretary uh, to the Treasury. Uh, so it's a real pleasure for me to open this conference uh, uh, with John, who has accepted to, to say a few words. Okay, thanks very much, Mauricio. Um That's an embarrassing long time ago when people talk about papers you wrote 30 years ago. You realize, uh, of course, you can see from my hair it's not how old I am. But uh, thanks for asking me to, uh, to speak. I um, have spent a lot of the years in Washington focusing on international finance issues, which of course overlap with uh, WTO and, and trade issues a, a lot, uh, in particular on the financial side. Those trade and financial services is a big part of the negotiations um, uh, these days. But what I thought I would do in deciding what to speak about, because Horatio uh, let it open, is to talk about what I call exchange rate diplomacy. Uh, it's an aspect of uh, international finance that has a lot of uh, relationships with uh, international trade. In fact, I always think this distinction we have between trade and finance and the international side is somewhat artificial anyway. But I thought this would be a good topic, uh, um, and, it, and I think it needs more thinking uh, about how to handle it dip diplomatically, what, whether the organizations we have in place internationally are sufficient to deal with it. Um, it's also, to me, interesting because a lot has happened in uh, what I call exchange rate diplomacy in the last few years. Uh, one thing that's interesting that you may not know about is that, uh, that since September of 2000, the United States has not intervened in the exchange markets once. And that's a new record, actually. Um, in, the, um, in the Clinton administration, there were approximately 20 interventions. Uh, in uh, Bush 41, the first Bush administration, a lot of interventions, and it sort of goes back into time, into the 80s, lots of interventions. So it's, a, in some sense, a new world. It's not a, de a declaration of a new policy, as I'll mention in a minute, but it's really what has been um, re realized as policy. Uh, the second thing that's interesting about recent years is the exchange rate volatility has come down tremendously. Right now, in fact, it frustrates traders, because traders, of course, make money on volatility. And uh, there's uh, such, such a small amount of volatility in these markets that um, there's, um, they're sort of asking for a little noise, if you like, uh, to, to, to move the markets around. But it's a good thing, actually, to have uh, less volatility. In fact, um, just in fact, over the years, the WTO has asked the IMF to look at uh, the impact of exchange rate volatility on international trade. And of course, it has some uh, negative impacts. So the fact that you have less volatility is good for trade. Uh, the third thing that's happened uh, in recent years is this extensive discussion about the Chinese exchange rate. And of course that is related to, to trade. For example, one of the threats in the U.S. Congress is to put tariffs on uh, Chinese goods, uh, if you like a threat, uh, to move towards a different exchange rate. So it inter interacts quite uh, a lot. And the third, uh, the last thing that's uh, interesting to me in these last years is is the Japanese uh, intervention in 2003 and 2004. I call it the great intervention because it was a tremendous amount of, of intervention in 2003 and 2004. And then it stopped in March 2004. It's completely stopped. So there's no in, endeavor by Japan uh, in these uh, recent months to, to buy and sell foreign exchange to try to move the exchange rate. 
around. And then another reason, I, the last reason for me to be talking about this is um, I had this position where effectively the responsibility was for the exchange rate. And it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, it's a $2 trillion a day market. It's an unbelievably big market, very active. And um, it's not like someone with an exchange stabilization fund of $30 billion, uh, if you think about it, um, can do a lot. You know, there's a, there's a limited amount uh, that intervention can do. Nonetheless, uh, sort of at the having that position, there's a great responsibility for what could go wrong. And so it was one of those things that was a thrill to be doing it, but of course you had limited ability to, to do things. Um, but, but, but it's important nonetheless. So let me, let me start actually, I want to talk about exchange rate diplomacy, which has to do with interactions with the United States and other countries, uh, either bilaterally or multilaterally or through the IMF or through WTO, however you want to think about it. But I want to just first list what I think of as a set of principles that I think guide uh, U.S. policy. This is not written down. It's a characterization of how I think about it. In fact, it not only guides the U.S. in some sense, I think you could characterize it as a decent description of other countries that have not intervened much in recent years. The European Central Bank, is, the ECB, has not intervened since 2000, September 2000. Uh, the Bank of uh, Canada, the uh, Bank of England has not intervened. So in some sense, these I'm going to list five principles which, again, are not written down, but seem to me characterize the nature of exchange rate policy um, in recent years. The first, I'll call it the field of dreams principle. The notion is if you put in place some good macroeconomic policies, monetary policy in particular, but also fiscal policy, good regulatory policy, that a good exchange rate system will come, if you like. If you build a nice uh, set of domestic policies and the, it'll, it'll help tremendously in giving you exchange rate stability or better performance of, of the exchange rate. And one way to think about that is just think about the contrary. If you have a, of a, of a terrible monetary policy, a inflationary policy, you know that that's going to cause trouble to the currency. It's going to cause a, a depreciating currency and, and a lot of uh, poor expectations and not healthy for economic growth. So at the minimum, a policy of uh, price stability um, is good for exchange rate stability. Same with fiscal policy. If you have a reasonably uh, uh, good, solid fiscal policy where the debt is not rising rapidly as a share of GDP, that's also healthy for exchange rates. So anyway, the first thing, in a way it's common sense, but I call it the field of dreams principle. The second I would call it is the endeavor to avoid intervening in the market, an aversion to intervention, if you like. And I always think it's important to that you, you never say never because, quite frankly, you're not in a position to say never. There's, there's an ability for countries to intervene in the markets. So, and it doesn't help to say, to say we'll never do it. It doesn't help the markets in a, way, in a way you could imagine the markets trying to test that kind of a statement. So better just to say there is an aversion to it, demonstrating it by not intervening very much. And the reason for it, quite frankly, is uh, with these markets so large, again, two trillion a day, it's hard to imagine uh, how much trading goes on. Um, it's not possible to move the exchange rates by much for long. Uh, the, for the dollar, for example, of course you could do some impacts on it, coordinate it a little bit, you could move it, but there's not um, uh, a, a lot to do. Moreover, there's constant anticipation. If you are potentially in the market, there is always anticipation about whether the United States or the ECB will come in, and that causes uncertainty itself. 
You know, are you guess who's in charge? Who's arguing? Who has the power right now? What are they talking about? So it adds, if you like, uh, the potential for volatility. The third principle that's equally important is to avoid verbal intervention. Verbal intervention is characterizes such things as trying to talk down a currency if you think it's too high, or to say that the, it's moving too rapidly. Uh, and the notion if a finance minister or a high government official makes these comments that it will move the exchange rate in a direction that you would like. It's verbal intervention, not uncommon. Uh, it happens a lot. My sense is it's it, it just for the same reason the intervention um, should be um, avoided if, when possible. Same thing about verbal intervention. For one thing, if you have verbal intervention without the actual intervention to follow, it's really an empty threat, and eventually the markets will understand that, and it will have less impact, more or more uncertain impact, if you like. So it's another source of volatility. The uh, real question, if you think of it, you're in a mode of a principle of avoiding verbal intervention, is what do finance ministers say when they're asked about the currency? And this, of course, is a real challenge. The idea would be to say very little. Uh, and, and that, in some sense, was the content behind the strong dollar policy uh, that began uh, in the Clinton administration. It really reflected uh, uh, revealing very little information. Uh, that became more, as the dollar became stronger and stronger, that line became more difficult because it had a connotation that you really wanted a higher currency as distinct from not saying too much about the currency at all. But the notion of avoiding verbal intervention is important. And it's, it, it's difficult because, let me put it this way, for example, myself, I've studied, you know, markets, financial markets my whole life. And so if a, a reporter asked me about the currency, to say I don't know anything or I don't want to comment, you kind of look like you're out of it. You know, you, you know you, <laughs> you're supposed to be an expert in this subject and you don't want to say anything. So it's very hard and it's very hard for anybody to sit there and, and, and you, everybody knows you're not saying anything and to say nothing. But it's important. It's really actually important to do and that's avoiding, the, avoiding volatility. I think it's one reason why volatility is down is the reduction in both intervention and verbal intervention itself. The fourth principle I would say to keep in mind is that, of course, exchange rates have ramifications, domestic politics, international politics, um, they, 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 because it's a, it's, it's a component of foreign policy. It has interactions with other aspects of foreign policy. And so I think from a financial official's perspective, it's important to face the reality that there are these broader ramifications and not sort of put your head in the sand and say, this is a financial issue, let me alone. I don't, want to, I don't want to have to discuss this with a broader set of foreign policy officials. And I think it's important as a principle not to have that view, but instead to engage um, with, say, the State Department or the Foreign, foreign Affairs or, uh, or the White House or whatever it happens to be uh, to make sure that uh, all these issues are discussed and so there's an understanding uh, of, of how to proceed. Um, and then the, the fifth principle, I call it the it takes two or more to tango principle. It, of course, even if the United States and, and Europe, uh, as they have for the last uh, five or so years, uh, have, have um, been close to the principles I'm describing, it doesn't mean every other country is. And an exchange rate involves at least two countries. And so that means that you have to have some notion of a financial diplomacy, exchange rate diplomacy in mind, as part of your policy on exchange rates. You can't just say, we're not intervening or we're avoiding intervening 
or however you want to put it, you have to think about other uh, players because they could intervene. And indeed, in fact, that's what I'd like to go to now in the two, uh, two large countries uh, which had done a lot of intervening and, and, and one still is, how does the United States, Europe, other countries, their, um, if you like, uh, have major currencies uh, in their purview deal with the intervention and exchange rate policies of other countries. And I want to do two examples. One is Japan and the other is China. So again, my fifth principle, uh, you have to have a di diplomatic strategy. Uh, and the question, do you need an international institution for that? Uh, how can international institutions be helpful if you do? And I'm going to do, I'm going to sort of get into that with, with a couple of stories, one Japan and one China. First, with respect to Japan, as you know, the Japanese had a, a dismal economic performance in the 90s. Some people call it the lost decade. And um, that, was, that was continuing in 2000, 2001. And um, there had always been a great, um, uh, say, strategy by the United States to um, try to work against intervention by Japan to keep the, uh, uh, the uh, yen uh, from going too low, basically to, to try to not to avoid um, intervention which would uh, prevent the yen from appreciating, if you like. Um, and that's been, a, it's been a, a part of policy, as far as I know, uh, for many years. Um, and that's, that's a reasonable thing you could say. The U.S. is intervening much. Let's, uh, let's try to argue about less intervention elsewhere. However, um, because of this very dismal performance in Japan and, and also the idea that a lot of that dismal performance had to do with monetary policy, which was, if you like, too contractionary, money growth insufficient, it seemed to uh, us in the United States that it would be good to uh, allow the Japanese to have more capability of increasing their money supply, increasing money growth, if you like. Okay, so in the um, uh, roughly speaking end of 2002, the, the, in discussions with um, uh, my counterparts uh, in Japan, the issue about intervention came up. And um, we indicated that at that time that um, uh, if they wanted to intervene, that we would be less uh, aggressively like in trying to argue against it. It was essentially their call, if you like. It was it was not you know not just given up in the sense do what you want, but in, but in some sense if if there's going to be more intervention, which they indicated there would, uh, that would be okay. And again, the notion was that by a, a period at least of more extensive intervention, that would be. Of course, when you intervene, you, you, the central bank is buying things, buying foreign currency, and when it buys things, it provides more liquidity. So the money supply goes up, if you like. And so by purchasing more uh, foreign securities, the notion was that Bank of Japan could be increasing money growth. And that seemed to be good. I had actually been a, an advisor to the Bank of Japan in the, in the 90s, and me and many other people had been arguing that they could have um, pulled out of this uh, uh, period of slow growth, lost decade by a more rapid money growth. And so this would be a way to do it, if you like. So they proceeded with this uh, intervention, and uh, it turned out to be huge. That's why I call it the great intervention. Uh, my counterpart at the time in Japan was um, Zenbai Mizuguchi. Constant contact on this, uh, these issues, daily sometimes. Uh, always informed directly about how much they were intervening on a given day. 
And over be, between the, the start of 2003, January 2003, and March 2004, when the Great Intervention stopped, the Japanese bought $320 billion so of, of U.S. Uh, securities, basically. And, and, of course, that generated other things equal, that much additional yen money supply as they purchased those, uh, those securities. And so the notion was that that would help Japan. Um, sort of informal discussion about this in late 2002, early 2003. By mid-2003, it looked like Japan was starting to turn around, by fall 2003, certainly. So at this point, our financial diplomacy was to say, okay, let's, we, this has worked, it's done, let's now time to think about an exit strategy from this. And so then for the next really, from, from the fall until the spring, the discussion was how to get it, how to exit this heavy intervention uh, strategy, and we worked closely with the Japanese. Actually, one of the, one of the most important meetings actually took place in California in, here in Woodside at Buck's Restaurant, where we sat down and got our charts on the table and worked out how the exit strategy might work. And um, it, it makes a long story short, um, the um, exit strategy uh, was to actually intervene more towards the end and then stop. And so in February, January, February, March of 2004, uh, it was really even heavier intervention. And I remember very, uh, just an illustration of how these things work, I remember very clearly on uh, a Friday in early March when the U.S. employment data came out for February. It was a, it was a, it was a, a not a positive report for employment. Employment growth was, was, was low. Other things equal, that would tend to reduce the dollar, value of the dollar, because people, re re traders reason weak employment report, uh, less tendency for the Fed to tighten or even loosen, uh, lower dollar. And so that you would normally think a, a poor employment report would generate a lower dollar. Today, the dollar, this day, the dollar strengthened and uh, the yen, of course, depreciated. And um, we uh, got reports instantly that Jap Japan had bought about $11 billion on that day. So in other words, going against the market, if you like. And so that was really the, the time where, if you like, enough was enough. And uh, one week later, they stopped and actually have, have not intervened since. But if you like, that's an example of, of exchange rate diplomacy. In this case, pretty much bilateral, quite frankly, or the meeting in Woodside would include the representations from Europe. Uh, and I think it actually worked okay. I think it's an example where it worked, worked uh, well. Probably lots of reasons not to have a huge multilateral apparatus for that, but you can think about it. The second example is China. And um, of course, this has gotten much more attention. And I would, I would think that to make this, this story as short as possible, in the summer of 2003, um, the United States, President Bush, Secretary Snow, um, decided it was time to have more of an organized strategy to deal with the Chinese currency, a peg, if you like. And a strategy was developed, a diplomatic strategy was developed about how to handle this. And again, the notion was that the, for a number of reasons, the, um, the peg uh, was, was not beneficial to our relationships. It would be beneficial to China to have a flexible exchange rate, beneficial to the world to have a flexible exchange rate, and it would have impacts on uh, positive impacts on uh, U.S. Uh, domestic policy, i.e. avoiding some pr protectionist sentiment. So for a number of reasons, it seemed like a good pr pr policy to go, to go into. So in this case, the, the, stra the diplomatic strategy had four parts. Number one is to work directly with the Chinese to indicate that a flexible exchange rate would be in, in their interest, not just the United States. And the rationale here was monetary policy. I, I'm a great advocate of flexible exchange rates because it gives 
monetary policy the ability to control the economy. If you have a fixed exchange rate, you lose that, and potential, uh, potentially you lose that. So interest of the Chinese as well. The second, and, and part of that was to never say, and I don't think to this day you'll hear this coming out of uh, the administration, never say we would like a revaluation of the RMB, but to say like a flexible exchange rate. Now, of course, you could see that with the with so many um, purchases of dollars by the Bank of China, Central Bank of China, that there was pressure for appreciation. But nonetheless, we would always argue for a flexible rate. Again, the rationale is that uh, would be in China's interest as well as the world's. The second aspect of this was to work directly on a technical basis with China to help build an a, a exchange rate market, because you can't have a flexible exchange rate if you don't have a market to price discover, et cetera. So provide technical assistance. Um, memorandum of understanding to work with them. The, uh, the third element of the policy was to make this multilateral. There's no reason for this to be a bilateral discussion. Be because the United States is such a big player in the world economy, it's almost always being, being pulled into discussions whether, you, whether the United States likes it or not. It's there, so it's a reality. Um, but when it's a multilateral issue, we should be multilateral. In this case, it's clearly a multilateral issue. The peg in, in exchange rate in China had just as much of deleterious effects for Europe as for the United States. And so uh, it was very important that we wouldn't have a situation where, where others were free riding, if you like, on the United States diplomatic strategy, but that it would all come together. And so a, a big part of this was to, was to draw in first the G7 and then ultimately uh, other countries the finance minister's G20 as well. So um, the, to do this, you had to get the G7 to put a statement in that we would like exchange rate flexibility in China. Huge diplomatic strategy of how to do that. It would help if you brought the Chinese to the G7 meeting. We brought the Chinese to the G7 meeting. The minister and the central bank governor came, and, and after a statement was issued calling for exchange rate flexibility, um, the Chinese came to the G7 meeting to discuss it. A can't believe, unbelievably good candid discussion. This was not posturing. This was uh, good, uh, knowledgeable people discussing how to move off a peg. And, uh, and the Chinese indicating, of course, we can't set a timeline. This is it's not easy to get off a peg. It's an exit strategy is very important to work out. Um, but anyway, this, this strategy, um, of a uh, four-part strategy. I didn't like the fourth part, I didn't mention. The fourth part was to explain this strategy to the Congress, uh, to um, Senator Schumer, later Senator Graham, because uh, it wasn't until after the 2004 election that Senator Graham also became part of this uh, uh, bill to raise tariffs if the Chinese didn't move, but to bring them into the discussion and explain what the strategy was. Um, and, and also to explain to the markets, because behind in my thinking, the back of my mind, was always a concern about the turbulence that could be caused by a, a too rapid emergence from, from a peg. And here you just might want to go back to history. You know, uh, some people have called the, the recent uh, rigidity of exchange rates in China Bretton Woods too. And it's because with China's peg there had been other Asian countries moving less against the dollar as well. And so it's almost you had like a good chunk of the world moving along with the dollar, uh, although not, of course, Europe uh, moving along with the dollar. So in some sense, it was like Bretton Woods one, where the whole world had a fixed exchange rate. You had U.S. and Asia and a near fixed exchange rate. 
Getting out of Bretton Woods, one, was a lot, was a lot of turbulence there. In fact, the United States did put tariffs out, 10% tariff to move the rest of the world. And there was a lot of turbulence in financial markets. I didn't want to have that. Nobody wanted to have that in this case. And so the notion of, of discussing this with the traders, with financial markets, to re reduce turbulence was a very important part of the strategy. And then so finally, uh, in the summer of 2005, China began to move towards its flexible rate. They depreciated by 2.1% and then had let the exchange rate float a little bit um, since then. And I think we'll continue to do so. But of course, it hasn't moved a lot by uh, the standards of, um, uh, of politicians, if you like, um, for understandable, understandable reasons. I'd like to see more. On the other hand, the movement has not caused turbulence. And, uh, and I think as the market in China develops, my thinking is that more, more flexibility will occur as more ability to handle the flexibility in the markets develops. And it will be iterative, both developing. Uh, and I think that's how this will play out. So anyway, this is another example, which is more multilateral. Um, it wasn't like the whole IMF uh, membership was involved, but uh, the major players and exchange rates were involved, and it was constructively carried out. So I think given, given my principles and given these two examples, you can then think about a little bit where do you go from forward in this issue. Uh, there is the great discussion about the IMF playing a larger role in exchange rate surveillance. And um, certainly the staff and the knowledge there is tremendous to be able to contribute uh, to it. And I think it's important that it, does, it, it, it contributes in that way. It, there is a question, however, about whether um, it should be servicing the um, members with information as a, or as a way to convene as this allows a framework for them to negotiate to carry out their financial diplomacy as distinct from being actual players. It's, to me, it's a little bit, you know, if you think about it in the WTO, should there be a dispute resolutions thing set up or simply just a forum for negotiations? My own feeling is it's more analogous to providing a forum for negotiations, providing a forum for uh, diplomatic discussions. And I think it's, it's important uh, to do that, but without the sort of heavy intervention that a dispute resolution mechanism might, uh, might create. Exchange rates are complicated. Markets are sensitive. You have to be careful about that. So the so dispute and the litigious aspects of that, I think, could be uh, of a concern to financial markets. Um, let me um, see. I'm just out of time, so my timing is pretty close. But let me conclude with uh, a couple thoughts about how to go a little further in this related to the WTO itself. Um, my uh, distinguished colleague here at Stanford, George Schultz, has argued for a while that we should think about ways for the IMF to, uh, and the financial officials, finance ministers, to interact more with the WTO and trade ministers in the sense that their interests are actually closer than the interests of the IMF and the World Bank, if you like. And in fact, we have, we're having a problem now with division of labor between the IMF and the World Bank, trying to work that out. In some sense, there may be more of a of syner more synergies with trade and finance, especially with my discussion now on exchange rates. You can see that. And so uh, one thought would be to, uh, in the future, to have, have uh, instead of have IMF World Bank meetings, have IMF WTO meetings, and have the World Bank meet with the regional, with the African Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, et cetera. And, and that is something that 
Secretary Schultz has uh, argued. I want to say I had one uh, endeavor to move that kind of agenda forward in my experience, and it wasn't, didn't work very well. And let me just explain it and then conclude. I thought, possibly thinking about this idea, that we could have one G7 meeting. G7 is where all the finance ministers and central banksers come together. Have one G7 meeting with the trade ministers. And so I started to discuss this. Could we invite us with my colleagues and the other countries, with my colleagues in the United States, USTR? And um, it didn't happen. And I pushed it a little bit and then gave up. And in some sense, the reason is, uh, one reason to think about is there's not a, not a one-to-one -one matching. For example, in Europe, you, you have finance ministers, which are still uh, have huge responsibilities in their, in their countries, even though they're in the European Union. Um, you, you know, uh, Great Britain, France, Germany, Italy. But with respect to trade, the Commission is really doing that. And so you had to think about how, you, how do you realize the fact that the, the, the really negotiator for, the, uh, for Europe is in the Commission. And there's no anal analogous thing for that for the finance ministers. So uh, that plus the, the queasiness that many people have about turf, uh, finance ministers are always worried about, and their staffs, I should say, especially their staffs maybe, always worried about uh, people, uh, you know, exchange markets are sensitive. Just what I was saying beginning, the notion you should face the broader ramifications. So whatever, it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that we couldn't keep trying to push it, but I think it's, uh, especially given the points I mentioned here, useful to think about in the future. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, if, if anybody has some questions, we could... Um, uh, we have come a long way from uh, Beryl's sprinkle days when he said, let them take care of the yen and I will take care of the dollar. Now, uh, you, know, you rightly say this is a uh, two-way uh, diplomacy. But my question to you is to what extent all this uh, quietitude in the last uh, three, four years is a uh, reflection of fundamentals in the financial system improvements, global integration of the financial markets, better risk uh, assessment capabilities, and so on and so forth, and to what extent it is cyclical. Now, if it is cyclical, then we'll be back to the bad old days soon enough. Right. Well, I hate to say this, but I think it's a little bit of both. Um, uh, but, I, but in doing that, let me just make the case that I think a lot of it is more systemic and not cyclical, okay? So it's not all cyclical. Um, and the reason I say that is there's some, especially if you look at um, uh, the policies in a lot of uh, emerging market countries, they do seem a lot different than they were 10 years ago. You, you look at... Uh, Latin America, 10 years, 10 years ago, a dozen years ago, the inflation rate was 60, 65%. Now it's 5 to 6%. And uh, the, if you look at Brazil, the way they restructured their debt to make it less sensitive to short-term movements of interest rates or exchange rates is quite remarkable. Um, and uh, so I think just generally speaking, you've got a, a, a big improvement in the policies. And, of course, you could say that's, that could change, but it's not cyclical. It's a, it's a more institutional, more fundamental change. And I think that's uh, uh, there. The, the reason why I think it's somewhat cyclical, and I'm not sure cyclical is quite the word, but perhaps temporary, 
is that the, uh, the spreads are down so low. You mean emerging market spreads are just r remarkably low, and there's reasons for it, as I indicated. But it, could po it, it also could be the fact that you've had these lower interest rates and people are seeking yield and they're looking for anything and that that could pull back. So I think probably likely, it's probably likely to, to lose some of that uh, uh, excellence because it's just so, it's so, the volatility is unbelievably low. Probably reasonable to bet against it staying where it is now, but I think uh, very unlikely to go back to where it was before. Yeah. Is it on? So since this is so much about the developing country perspective on trade, I thought I'd um, ask back on two points you made. One, in the early remarks you said that um, <clears throat> the choice of the domestic monetary policy would often guide developing countries to the right choice of an exchange rate regime. I think at least historically it's been rather the other way, that developing countries used the fixed exchange rate regime or a managed one to lend credibility to the domestic monetary institutions. So for them, I guess the, the notion would be the other way around. And the, <clears throat> on a similar note, the, the issues you raised with China, financial markets seem to have very short memories. Back when, in 97, uh, we faced the financial crisis in Asia, uh, policymakers all over the world were complimenting China on not having devalued as everyone else and were so happy that China kept a stable exchange rate. Now that it seems suitable, we all claim they should rather be flexible now and revalue, um, but it seems all a bit driven by the mood of the day. And um, to a Chinese policymaker, I guess this might all look a bit yeah. awkward. Well, let me say this on the first part of it. Um, I think that uh, really credible fixed exchange rates, currency boards, um, dollarization, joining currency unions uh, is can be quite beneficial. So I don't, I shouldn't, I'm glad you raised the question because I didn't want to leave the impression that, that every country in the world has to have a flexible exchange rate. I think it's, uh, I mean, for example, you look at Africa, the countries in the, in the uh, uh, CFA zone, they, they don't have inflation. They're really, it's, it's just, and that's, reason, that's the reason. Um, so that's much better uh, for them. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, t Turkey has been doing much better because of flexible exchange rate. Uh, and the ability to, to get inflation down and focus it on directly. So I think for this, for especially for small countries, uh, you know, I think the El Salvador has done great with dollarization, Panama, Ecuador looks like it's coming around. Um, so I think it's quite beneficial, and I, I would be the last to say that's not a good policy for certain countries to take, and I think it has. But it also has been a, a sort of a... Uh, holy grail of, and has been misleading to countries to think all they needed to do is have a fixed exchange rate and suddenly everything would be a miracle. Everything, but look at Argentina. They didn't have the domestic policies that supported the uh, currency board. So then the second thing, your question about China. Actually, I have a contrarian view about the role, the, about the, sort of the switching positions you mentioned. That it looks like the world said one thing then, another thing now. I, I think it's the same thing. Um, they, in, in 97, 98, they were congratulating China for not depreciating, right? Now they're saying they should, they should appreciate. It's the same direction. They're calling for the same kind of direction movement on the currency. So I don't think it's a whole lot different. I know there's this view that they, 
did just the right thing and now we changed our mind. But I think it's, it's actually from one perspective, it's not that much different. And they were, um, they were wise not to devalue then. And I think they'd be wise not to devalue now and indeed to move in a direction where the currency would likely move up. So I don't think it's that much different. Um, but I also think that the, um, the flexible exchange rate for China as China moves towards uh, more open capital markets is, is more and more essential. You know, if you, if you have very closed capital markets, it's, uh, you can have a monetary policy that uh, uh, is not even with a fixed exchange rate. But now they're opening the economy wisely, and so there's more capital mobility, and that makes it more difficult to have a, a sensible monetary policy. And they, you know, they, they aspire, like many countries, to have good financial markets where capital is allocated uh, efficiently, and that's going to require a domestic monetary policy that can control inflation. Okay, maybe we have time for one last question, if there is one. Okay. okay. Thank you. Well, okay. Very much, sure. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.